it's your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, I will pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. Uh, As we come to your text, as we come to your word, uh, I I pray, Lord, by the power of uh, the Spirit and by the goodwill of your Father that our hearts and lives and minds would be changed by the power and the reality of your grace and mercy that we cannot earn your love, but your love is poured out on us through the cross that our sins are forgiven, our lives are made new, that we are people uh, made new, and that we are people now made new to glorify You. And so I pray for us as we look at this text that the priorities of our life, that the governing priority of our life would be You, Jesus, and the mercy and grace You've extended to us. Uh, Please, Jesus, as I approach this text, uh, fill me with Your Spirit. Uh, The things that are of me, may they be forgotten, but the things that are of You, may they shine and glorify Your holy name. Uh, Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 29. Uh, this is a great and amazing text where Paul is in the middle of a mess because Corinthians is a very uh, messy letter to, honestly, a messy church in a messy city. Uh, but in this letter, uh, and, and specifically in this section, in this passage, what Paul is trying to, to, to do here uh, is to reorient this church around the right governing priority of their life, and that's Jesus. Uh, There are stories we tell ourselves and others about who we are and who we think we are, Uh, and the reality is, is that sometimes those are very true and accurate, and sometimes they're not. There are stories and ideas that we want to believe about ourselves, and there are many times that our actual life sort of shouts down those stories that we tell. The, The lives we actually live and the things we actually do say what our actual priorities are. Uh, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your thought life really say a lot about what is the priority of your life. And, and Paul here today wants their lives to be reorganized around the gospel. And that's frankly where we need to be. We need to have our lives continuously and constantly reordered around the person of Jesus. Uh, because there are these things can, that can become these overriding priorities in our life, whether it's success or the opinion of others or whatever that might be. But the reality is if we believe this thing is true, if we believe and know that Jesus Christ, God himself, entered into history to save us from us, from our sin, uh, to save us and liberate us and make us right and make us whole. And, and this is the reality of Him crossing the gap to get to us. This is the reality of what we believe uh, fundamentally as Christians, that we have a God who made everything good. Human beings ultimately break it, but that He Himself comes to fix it. And there's nothing you can do to earn His love. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with Him, but He's come to make Himself right with you to free you to live for Him. That that is the organizing principle of our life. That's what Paul is after for them. And as Christians, that's what we want. And sometimes our life doesn't quite match up with that, but that's where we're at. And the reality is that we're tossed to and fro in a world that is not concerned with you having your life organized around Jesus. We live in a world that's honestly not that concerned with having you organize your life around the love of God and the love of others. Uh, the, 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 the world we live in is not concerned with you having your life organized around the reality of history. That God did, in fact, make everything good. That human beings, in fact, did break it. And that Jesus came to fix it and will ultimately fix all of it. So today, as we look at just these couple of verses in the middle of this, as I said, a messy letter to a messy church, we're going to see Paul 
call this church to have their life reorganized, reorganized around Jesus. So here we are uh, in verse 29 of chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians. I'll read it, I'll set the context, and we'll kind of take it apart line by line. This is what I mean. Okay, well, why does he say this is what I mean? You always know it's a good sermon when I have to stop three words in and say, well, what are we talking about here? Um, Paul is in the middle of uh, several chapters about marriage and singleness and sexuality, all these different issues uh, that the Corinthians have frankly gotten wrong. So what's happening in Corinth is the Cor- it's a wonderful thing to say Corinth is a city in Greece, and it's actually, I believe it's still there. You should check your things and your notes before you say anything, but yes, it is still there. Um, so there's this city, Corinth, and what's happening is we have these people, this, what Paul regards as actually a quite successful and large church in the first century, which is about probably 50 to 100, maybe 200 people uh, here living in Corinth. Uh, and what's happening is you have a couple of parties, and what's happening is you have some that are really, really influenced by what's called fancy word, asceticism, use it in Scrabble, it's a good word, uh, they, they have a, a sense of asceticism, they're influenced by people like the Stoics and the Cynics, and that doesn't just mean grumpy people, but, but people have an actual whole worldview built around this idea, uh, and they, they think singleness is good, and, and sexuality is bad, and all these other things, and you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you have these people who are really influenced by what's called Platonism, or Plato, and I don't mean the little stuff that you make stuff with your kids with and the spaghetti that comes out of the... And you do this to make the motion. I don't know what you call the machine that presses out the fake spaghetti, but there it is. You can get one. It's amazing. Um, nonetheless, they're very, very hyper-spiritual people, and they think that the spirit is one thing, the body's another thing. So it doesn't really matter what the body does, which really influences the way they approach uh, marriage and singleness and sexuality. Now, Paul is trying to call them back to the reality of the gospel. He's trying to call them back to the reality of the world that God has in fact made. And, and so in do, so doing, he's talked about a number of things. And in calling them back, he says, and so this is what I mean. And so he's, he's trying to push on these two extremes they've set up. Uh, and why I think this is so valuable for us, we live in a world that wants us to adopt the world's understanding of all these different things. And the Bible actually has a different understanding of these things. So this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Okay. You will see phrases as you read your Bible, things like, these are the last days, or in the last days. The last days are the time between when Jesus ascended and when Jesus returns. Jesus is returning. He's returning physically, he's returning bodily, and when he returns, we will know he is back, and when he returns, he's coming to put the world back the way it's supposed to be. This is the promise. This is the overarching story. We broke it. He fixes it. Two parts. Really, three parts. God made it good. We broke it. And God's in the business of fixing what we ultimately break. Um, So he says this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Go with me to uh, Romans, if you will. Or you just listen. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 11, says this. This is also Paul, and this is what he says, by the power of the Spirit. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. This is your life if you're in Christ. The night is gone. The day is at hand. Right? The night is gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality or sensuality, nor in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God is coming to put everything back the way it's supposed to be, which changes the way we live. If you are alive today and you are a Christian, you are closer to the day that you get to spend eternity with Jesus than when you first believed, right? Every second, we actually go closer and closer to that, and that's the way it's been in the church for 2,000 years. Jesus is a good God who fixes a broken world, and Paul is banking on that promise, and he wants their lives organized around that promise. It changes absolutely everything when we understand this. Now go back with me to 1 Corinthians. Because he's about to say some crazy things. And when I say crazy, if you understand the Bible, they're not crazy. But if you live in the world, he's about to say things that we would not say are part of the status quo. He's about to say crazy things that we need to unpack. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible does sometimes say really, really radical, countercultural, crazy things. It always has and it always will. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Uh, This appointed time, the growing shortness, this word literally means to wrap it up. We're we're wrapping this thing up. The show is coming to a close. Uh, You get that sense when you're watching it. Uh, It's minute 19, and, and Batman is about to get Joker, or Superman's about to get whatever, or the Care Bears are about to do whatever they're going to do on the ship. When you watch a children's show, which I've been known to do from time to time, you get that sense at minute 19, when you can watch the thing on Netflix, that at minute 19, things are about to resolve. He's saying it's wrapping up. That's where we're at now. Now, he has to say that out loud because, honestly, it doesn't always feel that way. And if you say, man, it's been 2,000 years, when's it going to wrap up? I think he'd say the same thing today as he said here. It's wrapping up. We need to have God's vision and God's view of this reality. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, listen, I'm going to read it and we'll unpack it. Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as they were uh, not mourning, and those, and those who are rejoicing as they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present uh, form of this world is passing away. Okay, so what does he mean? What does he mean here? Again, coming back to this idea of governing priorities. Because uh, you have these people, in, in context, 6 and 7, chapter 6 and 7, uh, you have people in Corinth who are probably saying, well, I'm a Christian now, and so they're ditching their spouses, and they're ditching their children, and they're ditching their jobs, and like, I'm just going to focus on spiritual stuff. These are the aesthetics on one end of the spectrum, right? And you get other people who are just, in, 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 in just drinking in the stuff of the world on the other side of the spectrum. And Paul is actually calling them to something different, right? Here he says this. From now on, let those who have wives live as uh, they had none. So, like, I should stop texting my wife and letting her know when I'm coming home at night and, you know, working for my family and, you know, taking care of them, or, or I should stop doing that. No, that's not what he's saying. Of course not. Uh, the, the, the person who doesn't take care of their home is worse, or their household is worse than an unbeliever. So he's not contradicting himself. It's a priority issue relative to their love and service of Jesus as the governing priority of their life, everything else fades into the background. I mean, if you read the the big picture of 6 and 7, which we obviously don't have time to 
run through all of it right now because it's a lot of verses. In 6 and 7, Paul's really clear. Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. Human sexuality is a gift. It's all a gift within the confines that, that God has made. And Paul in these chapters, even with this idea of marriage, focuses on two things. And here's two more great Scrabble words for you. Protology and eschatology. Protology, prology, pro, protos, first, first things, eschatology, eschat, you know, scatological, last things, first things, last things. Okay? So now you have Scrabble words, and I'll just use first things, last things. So Paul's focused on first things, last things. God made everything good. God made human beings very good. God made marriage. It's wonderful, and it's a gift. But he also says in these chapters, and singleness is a gift. Uh, Paul goes so far to say, hey, be it like I am. Focus on, on this, because if you're single, you can focus on Jesus. Now, also what he also says, fortunately, I think, for those of us who like being married or want to be married or whatever, hey, and if you want to get married, get married, you're fine. But keep in mind what's happening. And even for those who are married, your whole life now organizes around Jesus. And he'll do this in a few places, and we have to be careful with these places because we have to know what he's doing or else it sounds weird, right? Those who have wives, you have none. You can put husbands in there too, of course. Uh, go with me to Galatians, another place where he kind of does this. In Galatians, in chapter 3, he says this. You can go with me or you can just listen. It's in chapter 3, verse 29. Oh, pardon me, 27. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ, so you're a Christian, you're a Christian, this is true of you, have put on Christ. So there was the person who we were, and there's the person who you are now. If you love Jesus, you are a radically different person than before you met him. This is a gift. You are more loved and accepted than you can possibly imagine. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. You've been given a new heart and a new life, and that is a gift from Jesus. And now our life is organized around that. So that reality, you being in Jesus, is bigger than any other thing in your life. Any other thing in your life. Here he goes. Watch. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Okay. This doesn't necessarily mean that much to our uh, 2016 ears. But what he's saying is crazy, right? The people of God are the set-apart people who have followed the law, who God redeemed, who promised to Abraham and redeemed out of Egypt and slavery and gave a land and has spoken to through the prophets and met with in the presence in the temple. And God has this very, 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 very special people. And all the people outside that people have typically not liked that particular people. But there's promises made in the Old Testament. There's a time when the dividing wall, as Ephesians puts it, between those people and everybody else is going to cease. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, it says these Gentiles, these people outside of the right people of God, they're going to stream on into this wonderful reality that comes through Christ. And you and I are not part of this thing, and we're grafted in if you're not Jewish, of course. If you have a Jewish background, you're people of the promise. If you love Jesus, now you know he's the Messiah, and that's great, right? Uh, that's less typical in 2016. We need Jesus to know God, and his Gentiles were grafted in. So this is a radical thing he's saying. He's saying that's all broken down. If you love Jesus, you're in with God, period. These are the people of God, the people that love Jesus, which is both offensive to the Jew and, in some respects, to the Greek. In this time and place, he's saying there's no distinction, right? So your nationality doesn't matter. 
in the long run of history. I don't know what your passport is. You could be Canadian, you could be Danish, you could be American, probably American, maybe not. You won't take that with you into the kingdom of God. You don't need a passport there. We're just all part of the people of God. In the long run of human history, a passport's pretty irrelevant. Loving Jesus is not. That does not fade. Uh, For as many of you are baptized in Christ, put on Christ. There is no Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. This is another big deal. Free people are real people. Slaves are not in this time and place. Right? We, We could put this in different context, right? You could be the richest person in Seattle. You could be the poorest person in Seattle. There is no distinction. Uh, you, you could be in, in any situation in Seattle and in Christ, there's no distinction, right? That means that in our church, uh, it, it's not, oh, we have this special nice seating for the rich folk and less nice seating for the not rich folk. Or uh, we treat certain people who, who give a certain way and people who can't give anything a different way. We don't treat people any differently because in Christ, there's no distinction. We need to embrace that as much as we possibly can in a world that stratifies everything. There's no male nor female. Now, whether you're complementarian as we are, where we, we focus on uh, the reality that God made human, men and women equal but have different complementing roles, or Christians who see uh, men and women as just plain and simple equal with the same possible roles, whatever, all Christians believe there's a distinction, if you believe the Bible, between men and women. Well, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying something that seems counter to what the Bible says. Why would you say that, Paul? God made them male and female. Jesus affirms that, right? Genesis 1, Jesus affirms it. Jesus says it all over the place. Paul affirms it. What are you saying, Paul? He's saying that though you might be male or you might be female, the the prioritization in your life is Jesus, that that is a bigger deal than than anything, than whether you're a man or a woman. There's a bigger deal, and that's Jesus, even though the Bible and Paul affirms that distinction all day long. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ, uh, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he's not making a a, a distinction about a lot of things, but he's saying Christ is the overarching governing priority of the life, the overarching really reality of identity that works out in priority. So here we are back in 1 Corinthians. For now, uh, those who have wives live as they had none. Again. I'm going to text my wife and tell her when, I, when I'm coming home at night, right? Because she cares and she loves me and she wants to make sure I get hit by a car or something. And that's that. But the priority is Jesus. The governing priority of our lives. How we work things out in the day-to-day. The point of everything. The point of your life is Jesus if you're a Christian. The point of everything is Jesus. He goes on. And those who mourn as they were not mourning. When you experience tragedy, this is not the first verse to bring to the table. When someone else has tragedy in their life, this is not your leading verse. Again, we have to understand the text within the context of the rest of Scripture. What else does it say in Scripture? Weep with those who weep. This is just for those who rejoice, not as if you're not rejoicing. Well, the Bible also tells you to rejoice with those who rejoice. Again, this comes back to the first things and the last things. Why do we weep? Even if you're not a Christian, why do you care 
when bad things happen to people? Why do you weep over news about happen, things, bad things that happen, uh, people across the globe that you've never met? Why do you care? I think it's because God has built you to care. I think because in us there's this echo of the reality of history that that's not the way things are supposed to be. We weep because the world is broken. We weep because it's not the way Jesus meant it to be. First things. Well, why in the world would we live as people who don't? Because we also have the assurance that he's actually putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. He's taking all the things that we broke through the cross of Jesus Christ and he's fixing it. There's not supposed to be sin in the world. Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the price for sins. You see this in his miracles. Read his ministry this way. Why 5,000 people get fed? That was not a complete sentence. Why do 5,000 people get fed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Because people are supposed to be hungry. Why does he cast out demons? Malevolent spiritual forces aren't supposed to be at work in the world. Why does he heal the sick? Because people aren't supposed to be sick. Why does he raise the dead? Because people aren't actually supposed to die. That's not how he built it. We broke it. He fixes it. So Jesus comes to fix what is broken in the world. Jesus weeps. Children are a very helpful uh, sharpening tool in your doctrine. My kids are reading their Bibles. Why does Jesus cry when Lazarus dies, even though Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead? Shortest verse in the Bible. We're going to learn a memory verse. Jesus wept. There you go. You have one. Right? Why does he cry? He's about to call Lazarus. He knows he's about to call Lazarus out of the grave. Well, because he knows that Lazarus is going to head back to the grave someday, apart from God's putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. Jesus knows the world is broken. That's why he came. That's why God himself, the person of Jesus, came to fix it. Right? Why? Because it's broken. Classic apologetic question. Either God is all good, doesn't, or all powerful, pardon me, either God's all powerful and doesn't care, and that's why the world is broken, or God cares, but he's not all-powerful. Have you heard this one? This is a favorite Seattle coffee shop conversation, right? Well, I know it can't be that he doesn't care. That's, that's, that's outside of the category of Christian theology. Why? Because God himself came and walked here on this broken earth and came to restore what is broken, not because of anything we've done, but out of his goodness and kindness and character, Jesus came. So the weeping in the morning, well, why wouldn't we weep? <laughs> why wouldn't we mourn? There's so much to mourn about. And why wouldn't we have joy? We're, we're, not, we're not Buddhists who say uh, all life is suffering. Uh, God made everything good. It's still got good qualities. There are good things that happen. Uh, there are still funny jokes. Uh, people still trip. There's still America's funniest home videos. Uh, things still happen. Uh, life is still good. Babies are still born. Uh, uh, babies still giggle. I mean, how can you not be happy when a baby giggles, right? And the one baby thinks that I, or the babies think I'm talking about them all of a sudden. Um, and that's fine, right? Because it's not all bad, but it's going to be all good someday. That's how we can 
No, because we know that the morning is passing away. And the rejoicing we have on the scale, when Jesus puts everything back the way it's supposed to be, what we enjoy now is so insignificant compared to what we will enjoy when Jesus restores all things. That we, that we have a tempered rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. We know the things that we have. I, I, I hate to tell you this. Uh, your iPhone is going to pass away. Right? Facebook is going to pass away. Your Facebook friends, your Twitter friends, or whatever other thing you're into are all going to pass away. Whether you're rich or poor, those things are passing away. Right? The resources you have today are in your hands for you to use to glorify God. They are in your hands to love God and love other people. Everything you have is there for that purpose. Why? Because you actually have everything you already need in Jesus Christ. And so as people who know that we have everything and we know where we're going to be with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth and this world ultimately put back the way it's supposed to be, so we live as people who are living kind of in the interim now knowing that the chairs we have are here so that we can come together to sing songs to Jesus. The money you have so you can put gas in the tank so you can come here and sing songs and meet with the church or go help people or whatever little tiny minute thing that is in your life is there for you to love God and love other people. Absolutely every speck, every little piece of dust in your apartment is there for the glory of God. Everything you have, absolutely every resource is there for Him and for His glory and to love others because you've been so amazingly loved by God. If you are a Christian, you are more loved than you can imagine. And that love actually never comes to an end. Uh, we, I think sometimes even can imagine, like, uh, I heard one guy propose it this way, kind of almost imagine like this, this tank of love, right? Uh, that God can love us so much, and, and, and we, can, we can sin, and when, he, you know, when we sin, he doesn't love us as much, or, or these other things. But the reality is it's hard for us to imagine, and it's not true, that's not a truth, by the way. Uh, it's hard for us to imagine in God's infinite grace and mercy and love, he has an infinite capacity to love you. And you have that love in Christ Jesus. You have absolutely everything. So every crumb in your fridge is there to respond to that love by loving God and loving others. Every crumb in your fridge. And those who deal with the world as they had no dealing with it. Now, Paul answers this question already when they say, well, what do we do with uh, you know, people in the church who are living lives really, really contrary to God? Uh, Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, right? He says, well, hey, if they're not acting like Christian people, you love them, you tell them the truth, you call them back to repentance, but at some point in time, if they're not acting like Christians, you don't treat them like Christians. And then they say, well, what about all these people in the world? He says, well, what about the people in the world? What about the sinners in the world? What about the greedy? What about the selfish? What about this? What about that? What about these people? He says, well, and this is the total remix, to get away from all those people, you'd have to get out of the world. So you'd have to build a, you know, apparently Amazon's building rocket ships now. Is there anything Amazon can't do, right? People, you build a rocket ship and you go to Mars to be by yourself, to be away from sinners. The problem is in your ship, there's one sinner, that's you, and you can't get away from you, right? Paul says you have to go out of this world to get away from sinners. So it's not that. So we deal with the world. We have life in the world. You can enjoy those good things in the world. You can enjoy music and coffee or whatever the things are. But all this is to be done for the purpose of glorifying Jesus and as if it is passing away. 
you know, we live in a world, not a Christian thinker, uh, but I have been fairly influenced by the thinking of a guy named Wendell Berry, great poet out of the great state of Kentucky. And he proposes the problem with people in our generation, our, our problem when we come to things to fix, uh, is not that uh, it's not a money problem. It's that most of the little fixes to fix most of the problems in the world don't get any notoriety. We have a fame problem. We have an acceptance problem. We have a people-loving-us problem. The, the driving motivational force in our life so often is that people will think we are awesome. Right? When I was a, when I was a kid, I'll say it that way, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as YouTube. Now, there's YouTube, right? Everybody I knew who was in a band, and I grew up in Bellingham, which meant everybody I knew was in a band, and everybody was trying to figure out how they could make money in a band instead of washing dishes for a living. They all went to college and got real jobs, to be totally honest with you. You could be in a band, and you could not wash dishes for a living, but that's very unlikely, right? It's great to be in a band. Do it. But people give away stuff on the internet today so that people will watch their video on YouTube or go to their website or download their song so they can say they have downloads. Downloads don't make any money, right? What that means is the prioritization is fame. The prioritization is people giving you a thumbs up or whatever thing we can do. The, the prioritization is that people are hashtagging and talking about you and that, that it's out in the ether and that you're loved by people. And they keep turning to this stuff and finding out what's driving people is that if they can get people giving them a thumbs up on this imaginary thing called the internet, they will do things. They will do crazy things so that other people will like them. That's our drive. I think more than money, our drive is fame, is acceptance. We live as people who are seeing to be accepted by Jesus. So our dealings with the world are with that. For what? For the present form of this world is passing away. The present form. Now let's be clear there. Let's be clear there. The present form of this world. He's putting this world back the way it's supposed to be. You die to be a part with the body is to be a home with the Lord. Fancy word for that. Another scrabble word. Intermediate state. We often call this heaven. You die, you go home to be with Jesus. But Jesus is ultimately putting this hunk of earth back the way it's supposed to be. He's regenesising it, which is a verb I just made up to say he's putting it back the way it was in Genesis 2. That's what he's doing, where we'll be here with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And somehow, Paul tells us in Romans 8, it is going to be better for having been so horrible. The timing and the structure of that is up to the Lord but we trust it and we walk in it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So don't live for this. We don't prioritize our lives around this. We live in this. We enjoy this. We love people. We love our friends. We love our spouses. We love our kids. We love our neighbors. We love our enemies. We love all those things, but we live first and foremost for the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, means going out of our way to give of ourselves to love other people, including loving Jesus. But it's a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love. So in these few verses, Paul's calling them to a couple of things. One, it's a reorientation around the reality of Jesus. Right? This is a reorientation to the reality of what God is doing in the world. He's putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. You and I are called to this today. Just as much as they were 2,000 years ago. Is your life oriented around the fact that Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and is coming again? Is that the governing orientation of your life? Jesus came, lived, 
died, rose, and is coming again. And if you love him, if you are his, he is yours. And not height, nor depth, nor powers, or principalities, or anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We tend to go towards either ignoring that, doing whatever. It's a compartment in your life. It's just part of who you are, sort of. Just something you put on an application or whatever, Christian sticker on the back of your car, which you can have. I'm not, I'm not decrying the sticker on the back of your car, but being a Christian is vastly more than having a sticker on the back of your car, which, of course, is becoming less and less popular in 2016 than it's ever been. So it's either that or it's legalism, right? I have to do things so God will love me. My drive in life as a Christian, I should get back in church. I should read my Bible. I should do these things. I should love people. I should be kind to people. I should pray to God. I should do these things. I should do these things. Why? Well, if it's the should, it's so that God will love me, right? God loves you. Jesus died for you. And so that becomes the thing then we respond to and orient our lives around that reality. You've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. If you are a Christian, you are made new and whole. That is what you orient your life around. That is who you are. That is what you live your life around. And so I think this calls us to an evaluation. Is this the governing priority of your life? Is this why you do what you do? Is Jesus the reason you do what you do? And are you doing it in a response to his love, grace, and mercy for you or something else? Because honestly, if it's not in in worshipful response, it's actually something else. It's self-justification. It's something else. It's seeing who he is and what he's done on the cross and and doing the work of making, making that the governing reality of your life. And so in light of that, we do a prioritization. If you don't know Jesus, and this is the first time you've heard the gospel, you say, I want in on this thing. Yes, I want to be loved by that. I want to know this God. I want to know this one who's going to put everything, including you, back together the way it's supposed to be. That is the priority of your life. And if you're sitting here thinking, I'm not sure if that is the governing passion of my life, or, or maybe I am interested in this Jesus guy. I would urge you, don't do any other thing in your day, in your night, or in your life until you figure this thing out, until you seek his face. Uh, Don't take my word for it. Grab one of the Bibles we have and read it. Start in John. Start in the Gospels and read about this Jesus and see who he is and know who he is and and hang out with people in our church. Come to our community group. uh, Eat our food. Let us take you out for coffee. Let us tell you about who Jesus is, but, but make this the governing priority. This is the thing you need to figure out. There's nothing more important than this. This is more important than anything. And if you're a Christian, if you, if you would consider yourself a Christian, and you say, well, I feel more like the kind of the bumper sticker thing. This is a compartment. This is not the governing reality of my life. This is the gift, right? This is what Paul thinks even with singleness and marriage and all these things. They're all a gift. They're all a gift for you to know Jesus. You're here today, and it's a gift, uh, not because of any eloquence or or lack thereof on my part, or you know, because of our amazing summer decor, or, or, or our Christmas lights. It's a gift that you're here to hear the gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is the gift. 
do everything to pursue Jesus. And, and if you are a Christian, we, we prioritize our life then around this. Uh, 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 when you get up and when you go to bed and bedtime and what you do for work and what you do for school and what you do for your kids' school and PTA and park time and any other thing in your life, every crumb in your fridge is for Jesus. How do you do that? You know, it's, it's not about the, the sanctity of your uh, crumb in your fridge and trying to see uh, visions in your crumb or whatever, uh, but even acknowledging uh, when you eat your food, whether you're eating top ramen, PB&Js, or, or something else, is a gift from God. Your body's a gift from God. Your taste buds are a gift from God. Uh, the fact that you've got food on the table is a gift from God. And praising Him in all these things, doing everything for His praise and His glory. Take the time to think about it. Don't pass it by. And don't just let it be, I heard this sermon and so I'll think about it on my drive home. This is, this is for the rest of your life. This is, this is the deal. Prioritize your life around Jesus. And, and, and the, the final thing I would say, act. Right? You could go home and you could download project management software and you could put everything in an Excel spreadsheet and you could do all this stuff and tomorrow you go about the rest of your life uh, as if it was just the way it was before. Who cares? What a waste. You, you've been given this gift. You've been given this chance. What is God calling to you what is he calling you to in life? What, how is he calling you to reorganize your life and prioritize your life around Jesus? Because this is the reality of Jesus. His gospel is good and grace. Came, lived, died, rose to save sinners like you and like me from death to life. And now we get to live our whole life in light of that. In light of the reality, we're going to take communion here in a minute. Um, as the, uh, as the veils are lifted here, uh, I'm being facetious. When these, are, when these are taken off, below there is, a, is a wine and grape juice. And on one side, there'll be gluten-free wafers. And on the other side, there'll be regular bread. Uh, that's the logistic of it. We kind of get in line. We, we take the bread and we dip in the cup. But we do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do this in remembrance of his grace and mercy in our life. This is a public proclamation. This is for Christian people as a public proclamation that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus, that your faith and trust in is, is in Jesus. And in Corinthians, which we're in today, Paul urges us to consider our sin and to take this in a worthy manner so we consider the things we've done wrong and the way we haven't prioritized our right life around the gospel. And we repent of those things and we turn to Jesus and we come to this. This is a victory table. This this is a celebration table. We come and celebrate the reality that you are loved and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his cross, and you get to live the rest of your life for him. And so we come and we take of this as a celebration. We stand up and we sing together to praise our God as a celebration of who he is and what he's done in, in worship and adoration for him. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then when you're ready, uh, please come on up. Uh, King Jesus, we do thank you for this day. Uh, I pray for us. It is so difficult. Uh, uh, we live in a world that sends us 10,000 messages, 10,000 values, and 10,000 ideas that are different than what you are calling us to. Uh, we're, 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 we're bombarded with ideas that are radically different than the ideas that, that you have uh, shown us and the ways you've revealed yourself to be. Help us, Jesus. We, we walk in confidence that you're restoring a broken world. 
We walk in confidence that you are saving lost people. We walk in confidence that we're forgiven uh, people. We walk in confidence that we're more loved than we can possibly imagine. We walk in that confidence, uh, not because we're confident in ourselves or even confident in our own proclamation, but we're confident in you, Jesus. We're confident in what you've told us. Uh, we're confident in, in who you are and your omnicompetence to accomplish your ends and your goals and your purposes. So, Lord Jesus, we pray these things for your glory. We pray you would help us, and we pray that, that we would know you and love you and serve you more and more every day. Jesus, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.